Hey, Teddy. Hey, Nick. Do you remember the book Love and Respect? Oh, 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 we do. Julia, Jeremiah, what are you doing here? We heard you wanted to talk about sex and relationships and we wanted to join in. Oh, uh, okay, yeah, well, uh, we'd love your help. So do you guys actually remember the book Love and Respect? Oh, oh God. God, we, we forgot, forgot about that. Welcome back to Oh God, I Forgot About That, the podcast where we explore artifacts from turn-of-the-millennium Christian culture. This is part two of our episode with the Sexvangelicals, our first guests. We're so excited and grateful to have them back. Just so you have a little bit of context, we're going to start the beginning of this episode uh, a few minutes before we ended last time. Uh, So hopefully you'll be able to catch the context. And if not, go be be sure to go back and listen to that episode so that you're fully caught up. And I will let you get back to our conversation, which began what seems like a number of weeks ago. A lot of the trends and themes that we see people attached to gender, it's not that they're not true in that they're not true, like um, patterns of human behavior, because sure, that's right. they are right? right that obviously they are. It's more so that we're pinning them to gender that's that right. falsehood or that seems the most false and in some ways so overly simplistic. So a lot of ways. Yeah, right. And overly simplistic in the sense that I can actually relate to both of those ways of of being. So I'm like, oh, in some ways I I can resonate with the spaghetti metaphor. And in a lot of ways I can resonate with that waffle metaphor. And so it seems reductionist that a person or a gender would be one versus the other. Right. Absolutely. And I actually think that that's a, a main theme that we're going to see in uh, Egerich's work as well today. He, oh boy. he follows this perfectly. Um, yes, he does. We've said this over and over again in different ways in this episode, in your wonderful episodes, we'll link in the show notes where you cover this text as well, that Egerich is just following after this same trend in marriage and relationship books. Could you guys just give us the like elevator pitch of the background material that you covered so well in your episode? Yeah, so so um, two parts of that. Uh, I'll talk about Egrich himself and if you'll talk a little bit about the book. Um, so so Egrich is a uh, he's a minister in uh, Lansing, Michigan, uh, who is also uh, he, he's a Wheaton grad. Anytime, uh, for those of you that are listening to this, anytime you hear the word Wheaton grad, uh, your alarm bell should go off a little bit. Uh, Wheaton tends to be uh, kind of a, uh, Tia Levings actually uh, named it this way, um, the, the Ivy League school for uh, conservative evangelicals. Mm. So something to keep in mind. Uh, he, he gets a PhD. It's, it's from a, a child and family ecology program at Michigan State. And Michigan State actually has a, a legit marriage and family therapy program and counseling psychology program that fit within that. Most people who are therapists, uh, such as me and Julia, will tell you where we got our therapy licenses from and our therapy degrees from. We will say, like, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. You are a licensed independent clinical social work. I have done probably two hours more than I would ever want to do reading about uh, Emerson Egerich. I can't find any sort of training that he has on counseling psychology. And I this was is wondering a, if you could. And this I is a huge either. problem. We couldn't. I did not try as well as Jeremiah, but I tried as well. And this is a huge problem. Uh, and Egerich does this. The focus on the family crew does this. Uh, they conflate ministry with relationship therapy. And ministry and relationship therapy are not the same thing. Ministry is about, um, you know, providing uh, a person bringing something to another person. Um, So when I'm doing ministry, I'm, I'm, for instance, bringing good news to you in some sort of way, uh, either through training, through education, through service, something like that. Relationship therapy is about helping two or more people develop the communication and relationship skills and the negotiation skills to make decisions that work best for them. And um, and, and Egerich not having the counseling and, and he will say that he does counseling but not that he is a counselor, uh-huh. which is a really, really important, uh, a, a huge ethical issue from my, from my perspective. And uh, again, he's by no means the only person who does this. 
Uh, no, I mean, but... I think every pastor that I've ever worked with or oh, known yeah. has claimed to do counseling or offered counseling services right. on some level. And the only qualification that they offer for that is their uh, ordination papers, basically. It's Absolutely. really easy to find someone's license online. There are like six different licensees that are available. They all do the same thing, but you can you can find them. If you can't find the license online, that's Within a about five minutes, that means that you're probably not licensed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so, so, so keep that in mind as we're reading Love and Respect, we're reading this written from a minister and a minister in a conservative Presbyterian church who... Um, before he gets published, gets co-opted, gets invited into the focus of the family community, which is this whole other shit show uh, of, of, of a nonprofit. And because he is a minister, he is preaching one specific uh, one specific context, uh, and that is relationship work, which he espouses to have a PhD in, uh, is essentially broken down into the performance of gender. Mm-hmm. So, yes. so, so another funny thing. Part of um, growing up in the Church of Christ uh, and and not so, so being in this libertarian group that is both uh, conservative Christian, but not of the conservative Christians. I had never actually heard of this book until mm-hmm. about six months ago when we did an episode on this. Yes. Which blew your mind, Julia. Teddy, you hadn't either, right? No. Nope. Yeah. So That's the subtitle good. of the book uh, really says it all. I had to remind myself what the subtitle um, was because I've got COVID brain. But the subtitle is Love and Respect, colon, The Love She Most Desires, The Respect He Desperately Needs. The book essentially is a relationship self-help book marketed to the general public, not just the Christian audience, about how to have a thriving relationship. And the way to have a thriving relationship, according to the author, is to perform gender-based roles in which women give their husbands uh, the respect and men give their wives love. And respect in this book generally translates to deference to male authority. Acknowledgement hierarchy, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes. Jeremiah said acknowledgement of the hierarchy. That's a perfect way to describe it. And love translates into nurture and nurture, although good across gender lines in this context, often translates to a coddling, to a dismissal of autonomy and to once again, a reinforcement of the hierarchy between men and women. If I am being charitable the charitable thing that I will say is that Egrets, am I pronouncing the last name correctly? Egrets? I don't care. Okay. <laughs> if I'm being charitable, Egrets describes what he calls the crazy cycle. And in family and relationship therapy, we do pay attention to what are the cycles that occur and how do we break free out of the vicious cycles that create unhealthy, unproductive conflict? And what are the cycles that can provide healthy relationship, which we could define at another point? The problem here is that Egeritz essentially says the way that we get out of the cycle is to enact what therapists would call is the first order change rather than second order change, which is actual relationship change. And we avoid the conflict by performing our God-given roles based on gender. That's fantastic. And it gets exactly to the heart of what I think the main conflict of this is reading this from a gender studies, from a text based lens. There is no real change that's asked for here. There is no real substance to the advice. Um, It's something I I took a marriage in the family class. I mentioned that already. But when I was at Bible college, I also took a pastoral counseling course. Me too. Oh, it was disgusting. Um, I mean, I remember people even giving pushback to it at the time, like other folks in my class. But it was just this kind of vapid. Well, when you don't feel like doing the thing, you just do the thing because Jesus said, do the thing. And when your other person can't do the thing, you remind them that Jesus likes it when they do the thing and that will motivate them to continue to do the thing better. And that's like Egridge's big push. So there's a fantastic summary that's all really great stuff. And I think it sets the scene really well. So 
So I want to start with two pieces that you guys didn't mention that I found and I thought were interesting and are going to guide uh, what we're talking about here. The first is I found a, a talk that he gave actually in 2019. Oh, really? Houston. Okay. Yeah. I watched it on 2.0 speed because I could not handle two hours of listening to him talk. I told Teddy wow. and my partner, it, it felt like drive-by misogyny. It was rough. <laughs> but <laughs> in that talk, it's basically he was invited to a, to a church to speak. And I, I kind of regret spending so much time with it because it was essentially regurgitating the main talking points of the book. He didn't mm-hmm. say much new. A couple patterns that we'll talk about later, but the the notable thing for now is he discusses being in the meeting for uh, being asked to write this book. And they explicitly told him, this is according to him, that they wanted him to write this book with women more in mind because women are the target audience of relationship books. And he said, again, according to him, that he didn't want to do that because he felt that men got left out of relationship books far too often. And he wanted to write a relationship book that was more geared towards men or at the very least geared towards both people together. This is what he thinks is geared more towards men and the male side of the relationship. They just don't get enough respect. Yes. So, Teddy, please read. I'm just dropping this in here now. This is the first goddamn paragraph. (laughs) Teddy, you're so lucky. I know. So lucky. You may remember how the Beatles sang, All You Need Is Love. I absolutely disagree with that conclusion. Five out of ten marriages today are ending in divorce because love alone is not enough. Yes, love is vital, especially for the wife. But what we have missed is the husband's need for respect. This book is about how the wife can fulfill her need to be loved by giving the husband what he needs. Respect. Wow. So just linguistically, forget anything else. This is just explicitly, this book is about wives giving their due to the husband. This is about wives changing behavior for the benefit of the husband. There's nothing about husband change here. It's like, do I am I reading that differently than you guys see it? Nope. No. Nope. Again, he explicitly says he wants to write a book aimed at men. And then in the first paragraph, aims his book right at women. Which gets to what I mean, I mean, this is what Andrew Tate does. Yes. Wow. I didn't think. Yes, get please to say Tate. more. Well, Andrew Tate, rather than saying rather than talking about hey men you have been screwed over by a capitalist system uh that isn't giving you that isn't giving you benefits that isn't giving you paid time off that isn't giving you health insurance like advocate for that more and also work with women to do that he says no women are the are are the reason that you're getting screwed over Uh Uh, it's women that need to change donald trump does this um who's that idiot that uh, matt walsh does this yeah um ben shapiro does this yeah this is this is this is the same move yeah that's a really great observation and i i hadn't considered it like on that scale but you're absolutely right it's it's something i say about conspiracy theories a lot is like there is a legitimate structural critique that can be made about wealth distribution and power in money and problems with capitalism But instead of going for that critique, we just insert like the science fiction answer. Right. Which is, oh, it's the lizards that are taking over everything or it's this cabal of Satanists or something like we get this fantasy or science fiction explanation thrown in. I'll go so far as to say I think it's the gender fantasy that often is the most like accessible scapegoat for these situations. Yeah, absolutely. I have also dropped in the chat a image from the book. Uh, it's the book plate for the first main chapter. Oh, uh, the crazy he, cycle. Yeah, oh, this yes. is the illustration of the crazy cycle. So it's just this circle with arrows pointing in a clockwise direction. 
that says without love, she reacts without respect. He reacts without love. She the idea is that if he doesn't give love, she won't give respect. And if he doesn't get respect, he won't give love. Okay, it's a fairly straightforward formula. Before I give my thoughts on this, excise it from anything Egerich is giving us. Just this principle alone. How do you two as relational therapists feel of looking at this as a cycle or an issue in a relationship? Like I said earlier, I'm skeptical of anything that reduces a pattern to gendered lines. So if I didn't know that this was Egret's, I would be very curious and apprehensive about, huh, what's the she and what's the he here? I would also be really curious about the word crazy. Yes. And why are you choosing to use the word crazy, especially given the gendered uh, component or the the gendered history of the word crazy, especially as a misogynistic term against women? Mm. Mm -hmm. And can you pull up the image one more time? Because I suppose that you could, if this is a cycle, you could could interrupt it anywhere. But piggybacking off of what you're saying, Jeremiah, seems like the onus is on the woman to break the crazy cycle. And then if we look at the history of the word crazy, that that could be a bit more alarming. Right. Yeah. No. So you guys, you guys pointed out the main things that that I would want to point out. I agree. This is a highly gendered uh, uh, presentation of it. I read this as showing the two problematic false binaries that Egridge uses to build his entire theory, because the Mm -hmm. entire thing comes down to this cycle, right? He says this book is about getting into this cycle and then getting out of it. So this is the, the conceit of the book. But the two main problems, which you've identified, is it's gendered. Uh, she's the only one who can react without respect, the woman, and he is the only one who can act without love. He does this a lot, especially in his talk, but he's like, no, not everybody. I understand there are exceptions, yada, yada, yada. But he frames it as women do this, men do this. It also divides love and respect. Now, this could just be the way I think about it. But to me, those are not on the same spectrum. They're not opposite ends of a spectrum. They're also not opposites. They're also not things that you would put on a binary. Absolutely. They are overlapping correlated ideas but they are their own thing one can respect without being loving but i don't actually know that you can love without being respectful yeah yeah i i feel like especially in romantic relationships but even in in platonic relationships you see this weird conflation of these two things I, I don't know i teddy how does this track with like your platonic your familial relationships like do you see th- these things being split i was gonna say the exact same thing as you i was sitting here thinking you can definitely respect someone without loving them but it's hard for me to imagine that you could love someone or should i say love someone in a love someone well love someone mm-hmm. in a healthy way um, without respect. And I actually remember thinking this is not like a super complicated idea. I remember thinking this as a teenager, because although I didn't read this book, this distinction was made over and over and over again about women ultimately craving and needing love and men ultimately needing respect. And this just sitting like just not sitting with me and me just yeah. feeling like I just don't understand how I could be loved without being respected or how I could feel loved without being respected. And yes, the same is ultimately true i think for many many relationships beyond you know romantic yeah really well said i i remember like just having this conversation with with my partner on our wedding day that we were like going through the vows and stuff like that and it was just this uh, honor and respect and love and cherish was split in the way the vows were handed to us and it was just why does it have to be that way why can't we both love and respect bringing the expectation be that we're in this symbiotic relationship where we both have respect why the hell would i be in a committed relationship with somebody i didn't respect or that i didn't have passion and love for 
Does the author anticipate that counter argument? And does he have any kind of like response to like, I know, like, does he say anything like, I know the average reader will probably think that how could I love someone without respecting them? He must address that in some way, right? Or does he think his audience are just complete idiots? Do either of you recall? I also think that he's talking about respect from the perspective of of hierarchy. Mm. When I read through Love and Respect, the vibe that I got was not hey, like my, my partner says, don't do this. And I like follow what they say. Mm. Like that's one way of looking at respect. I think that he's uh, following uh, more of a, do- for, of a James Dobson uh, version right. and more of a eugenicist actually uh, version of, of respect, which is rooted in the hierarchy mm. um, that, um, you know, that, that, that the man needs respect uh, well, of course he does, because in the Christian context, he's the head of the household and women don't. And if women challenge that, they are apostates. They are sinning. Right. Um, and that, you know, love is just like, make sure that you're like as as little of a dick as you can about this. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that's that's very it's very on point. He doesn't really in the book worry about that argument at all. Right. In some of his more contemporary reiteration. He does offer something, and I'll I'll give you that in a second. But no, to him, respect and love are two different biblical principles that are specifically gendered and attached to respect to men and love to women separately. He goes to great lengths to divide them and offer like an essentialist perspective of like these are separate things. And the closest he gets in the book to like actually acknowledging that these things coexist is of course everybody needs both but the dominant operating procedure for men is this is is respect and the dominant operating procedure for women is love so he does like some yeah 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 that too lip service to these ideas but to him they are essentialist on a biological and spiritual level the same way that gender is uh, and I, you know, so I think Jer- Jeremiah summarized that really well and and yeah, made the link to the weird eugenicist kind of stuff. Oh, That's yeah, always absolutely. their cop out, too. Right. Like the mm-hmm. idea of like a core desire. It's like they get out of like these kinds of conversations. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. saying, Well, everybody like care, you know, everybody wants all these things, but the core desire. And it's right. like you just skipped all the parts of having to prove what a core desire is, how to quantify this, how to prove this. And you're just saying it's a thing that exists. And it's like ridiculous. I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but it just seems like that's often they're out is like. Yeah. Yeah, but the main thing, the core desire. But Teddy, what you did is important because you you talk about the process that they skip. Yeah. And I think that when we are confronted with someone who does that, I think it's important to name that. I think it's important to name the the, the process. Well, hey, wait a second. How are you deciding that this is the core desire? Like, like mm-hmm. how are you how are you quantifying this? Like, what sources are you using here? Yeah. Um, I just had this conversation with a student recently. Uh, we were talking about social constructs and, you know, this student was like, well, I just think and this is at a, at a, you know, not a Christian university. And he was like, well, I just think that we're, you know, designed by God to be this way. And I said, OK, cool. But you have to actually be able to prove that as a right. a priori thing before we get to society or else you're just talking about a social construct as though it's an absolute. Right. And that's one of the big, like you said, moves that a lot of these uh, uh, Christian academics, I'll put that in quotes, uh, like to use is there's just, oh, I'm I'm looking at the Bible. The Bible says this is an organic. This is a natural. This is an essentialist thing. I don't need to prove that that exists. I'm just going to show you all the stuff we've done to, you know, back up this claim that we've already agreed to. It's that like statistical setup bias. It's not even in the Bible. Right. Yeah. Right. Anger I mean, that's the other thing we don't mention enough. It's I know I keep kept saying this in captivating. I'm like, we keep saying, well, they, ba- you know, ultimately for them, they don't need the evidence because it goes back to biblical. You know, it's biblical, but it's not biblical, actually. None of this right. is in the Bible. This is all modern mumbo jumbo that they've pulled out of their asses. It's not even in the Bible. Can I can I actually Okay, I want to actually push back on that in a weird way. Yeah, I don't necessarily disagree with you. On the whole, I agree with what you're saying. It isn't in the Bible. 
because 90% of what people say is in the Bible is not actually in the Bible. Right. All reading is an interpretation. But what happens when you lay everything on one single text, right. you then start to do this interpretive gymnastics. Yeah. He literally appeals to the fact that there are verses that say men do this and women do that. Like, oh, we should love each other. And since it's structured in a A-A-B-B way, that that's the only way to think about things forever well, the, and always. And the, hard, the other hard thing is that there's some epistles in which Paul's writing to different people and he holds a very, like what we would consider a very traditionalist, rigid gender dynamic. Uh-huh. And then there's books like Galatians where he doesn't. Uh, we, there, there is no uh, Jew nor uh, Greek. There is no male nor female. We are all one. Right. Um, so, so, so Paul, t- uh, depending on who he's writing to, he, he takes both perspectives. Wait, I'm sorry, Jeremiah, are you saying that Paul was a flip-flopper? Yes. A cherry picker. A cherry picker, mm. depending on who he's writing to. Yeah. Wow. It's almost like context mattered to the people yeah. that wrote these texts from thousands of years ago. Um, I think you're right, almost, Nick. And, almost. And, almost. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. I think you're right. And just to clarify, I think my frustration is always that these people hold two things at once. And yes, one is right. that in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God and the beginning was God. And it's like, this is literal scripture that we have to subscribe to. Right. And it's God breathed. Yeah. And then we also are OK with taking that scripture and making it applying it as like this launching board into all of these other things that are not actually linked directly back to the scripture. I don't actually care whether or not it's in the scripture. I care that you have built a faith built upon a text that you are saying you take literally and then mm. you are extracting. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. All day long. That's yes. the issue. Absolutely. That was brilliant. The other move that I think a lot of these Christian academics do is set up vague goals. Teddy, you kind of like said this earlier. I'm going to quote two sections from him, uh, just two sentences. He frames the critical language that the wife gives that is disrespectful to the husband as acts of contempt. And he uses a similar vague phrase about what men do when they're unloving to women. But he also follows that up by saying, quote, it is in her nature to love, but it is also in her nature to be disrespectful. It is in my nature as the man to be unloving when I feel disrespected. So now he's added he's added vague language to what it even means to do this thing. And then said that it's a natural compulsion to act in opposition to what the other person needs. And then he has the audacity to turn around and talk about how great of a design God put up here. Right. 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 Wow. Huh. He calls it. It's a mind fuck. No, it's just like a, that's like a big mind fuck. It really is. He, he, he calls it, uh, videotaping things in purple because well women perspective is pink that's how they videotape everything and the male perspective is blue and they videotape everything in blue and when you put pink and blue together apparently you get purple which is the color of royalty and the color of god so you need both you know i i just it's so contrived and so stupid yeah like Again, you're saying there's this difference and dissonance that is essential and necessary and designed that way, that it's now a hurdle that we have to overcome. And it's like, if you just tilt this 10 degrees to the left, it's an argument against any heterosexual relationship because you Mm -hmm. should be with your own kind and having, you know, like pink with pink and blue with blue. Like, let's just go for it, man. Yeah. The final thing that I think these academics do... To actually like occlude their goals is demonize other kinds of academic approaches. He says this in the talk a lot. Now, I said he doesn't really qualify any of this stuff in the book, 
Um, but you can tell he's had too many publicists or PR people tell him he needs to back off the the like language because it can lead to harm. Because yeah. every few minutes he would go, obviously there are exceptions. And if you're in harm's way, get out of harm's way. But or like, I'm not talking about real evil here. Like if he's beating you, he's beating your children or doing violence or oh, if he's acting in unloving ways. I'm not talking about real evil. Like and this is his go to example. Like, honey, I've decided I'm selling the children to help our cocaine habit. That's his go to example of an actual evil uh, that he's not talking about. I just come across that exception all the time in my work with couples. Yeah. I got a call children's services. And right. I hate it when they sell the children for the cocaine habit. Damn it. Fifth time this week. <laughs> and also, like, there are some, I mean, we're laughing about this now. There's also some racial undertones to that, too. Yes. Because, you know, it's not like he's talking about like the heroin habit, the meth habit or something like that. He's talking about cocaine, which is a drug that is explicitly linked to lower class black communities. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the real he, evil. The real. <laughs> yeah. The real right. Evil. And he he does this then and says that, like, oh, you know, the, my academia brain, this is just how I think I've been trained in academia. There's a bell curve to everything, which is like, no, no, there is there is not a bell curve to everything. That's that's actively what academia says there isn't. Thing, I'm going to quote him here. Of course, there are exceptions to everything. I'm saying this and because the first thing some of you are thinking, some of you women are sitting there because you've been conditioned through academia to think that, yes, we women need respect. We've been sitting there the whole time. Uh, sorry, his wording is so weird here. Haven't you thinking that we've been conditioned that we that you need respect too? And then he has this bit that he regurgitates all the time where he's like the Aretha Franklin song, R-E-S-P-C-T. Uh -huh. I remember that. It was that. originally written by Otis Redding. So really women took that song. Otis Redding wrote that song for his wife and Aretha came along and took it. We had one song, gentlemen. They took it and they took even that and they left us without it. And they, they, they women. They women. Which again gets back to Ben Shapiro, gets back to Jordan Peterson, does I was this. Just about to say that's the Jordan back, Peterson. Uh -huh, that's right. Gets back to Andrew Tate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The demonization of like academia has conditioned you to think differently from me, differently from God. So now all of a sudden we're okay with social conditioning. Right. But then they use, the, and I say they, Eggert and other Christian mm -hmm. authors, then use academia when it's to their advantage. Right. So something we talked about in our episode is that at one point he, uh, at one point Eggert quotes Dr. John Gottman and Dr. John Gottman is a secular academic. Mm -hmm. So one of my favorite Christian power plays is using academia when it serves their purposes, often out of context, right. and then demonizing it when it goes against something that they want to purport. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, academia is perfectly fine as long as it proves my preconceived notions. Yeah. hundred and ten percent. And it's and it's something that I. Uh, I've used this phrase before, but like it's it's intellectually dishonest yeah. uh, on multiple levels. It's just I'm not willing to actually address is this issue like what is the quality of this issue? Is this a gendered issue or do I just need it to be for my worldview? So I'm assuming it is and then asking questions based off that you're keeping that foundation too tight. You're not even willing to ask is the worldview itself? something that could be challenged or tested right his stories his anecdotes kill me <laughs> i don't know if you guys encountered too many of them as you were reading yeah. but they're all these punchlines from like 90s relationship sitcoms mm -hmm. uh -huh. his wife's reaction is always the punchline he's always the perfectly reasonable one it's just it feels so dumb. <laughs> it bothers me so much. I hate I hate lazy humor. I really do. Sure. And I don't. It's just an irrational like I, I, I love a good joke and I hate lazy humor. And all of this stuff just feels so lazy. 
I don't know. Well, it's interesting that you're equating this to 90s humor. Like one of the things Julia and I are doing this summer is talking about the connection between purity culture uh, and recognizing that purity culture is not just this fringe thing, but purity culture infiltrates into the entirety of culture, including the mass media, including the 90s, including the 90s and 2000s mass media and talking about and talking about how that happens, and, including mm-hmm. in TV shows, including in the, uh, the, the sitcom, the stereotypes of. Uh, the husbands, the stereotypes of the wives. Uh-huh. Uh, so, so it's interesting to see these kind of go hand in hand. Yeah, I'm in the middle of working on a. Uh, I'm I'm co-editing a collection on fatherhood in cartoons for adults. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm really fascinated by this question. The piece that I wrote for it was about BoJack Horseman, mm. which is a show about somebody who played a father in a '90s sitcom. Okay, right? so it's. It's meant to like critique the facade that is, you know, 90s sitcom parenthood. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm constantly baffled by the way these anecdotes in texts like this are just depicting that kind of relationship, that kind right. of parenthood and just taking it as a given. Oh, this is just the way things. Isn't it funny that this thing is actively true? And yeah. that we need to then build off of how to fix this satire of a problem. Right. And it's weird because both things are true, right? Like on the one hand, this depiction is not actively true. It's not actually a valid representation of men and women. Right. But also art instructs. It's all didactic on some level. And so we learn to act that way. So now we're setting up a problem that isn't quite real, but is also socially constructed. And so we have to like operate in these very nuanced and weird ways, but none of that, that's all washed past uh, in these texts here and in his anecdotes. Yeah. His opening joke to that talk from 2019 was a wife says I have nothing to wear. What she means is she has nothing new. Her husband says I have nothing wear. What he means he has nothing clean. Which means the wife hasn't washed his clothes. That's right. That's right. You get it. (laughs) <laughs> he says, he says, I love that. It's an innocent illustration, but it's fascinating, isn't it? That the, that we say the same thing, but we mean something different. We say the very same thing, but we mean something different. You know, male and female communication is fascinating. As the one in the relationship who does not do the laundry, when I say I have nothing to wear, it is because I do not have anything clean or that I haven't folded my laundry. Which is uh, Jeremiah's role in our relationship. I'm sorry, Julia, that I haven't done my uh, partnerly duties in uh, folding your laundry and, and putting it away. And I forgive you. Thank you. But, but, but like, Nick, what you said, like, it's not funny. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not. It's not funny. It's not incisive. It's not like setting up any actual problem. Right. right. It's just, oh, isn't it funny that when my wife and I talk we talk past each other. Like, right. That's not a that's not a gendered problem. That's a you didn't say you didn't. all of the parts of your thought. <laughs> right. 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 <laughs> Why did we make that a gender problem? Right. I like how he thinks it's funny, too. He's like, I love that joke. <laughs> yeah. Sexism. <laughs> I want to I want to start to wrap our episode with um, two kind of critiques of this in sort of the broad right uh, we didn't get too deep in this there's so much and i and i also didn't want to take away from a lot of the really great points you guys made in your episode i want to direct people there because I, I think you handled it very well so i really wanted to glean from you other things that we can talk about this the trends in self-help relationship books from our time period so have either of you in your time discussing this issue, come across Sheila Ray Gregoire's open letter to focus yes. on the family. Aww. Yes, we talked about that a bit on our podcast. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Her commentary on the book and on focus on the family, I think, was really fascinating. And I will leave it linked in the show notes. But this is sort of the the critique of this mindset, a very specific critique of this mindset, coming from someone who's still in the Christian community the christian world do you guys uh mind offering like 
a highlights, like a two or three point highlight on this. I know I didn't mention that in the startup, but if you right. remember it. If I'm remembering correctly, and you've reviewed it more recently than me, so please correct me if I'm misremembering. I believe her main critique was around uh, sexual assault and violence based on the binary of love and respect. One of the points that Jeremiah and I make in our podcast is that the book and so much Christian literature at the time echoes the point that women show respect primarily through being sexually available, Mm -hmm. which is super harmful on all kinds of levels. Am I remembering correctly that the open letter focuses on the dangers around sexual assault and marital rape within the context of this uh, binary? Yes, that is one of the things that uh, Sheila talks about a lot in this letter. And she has a series of things on love and respect. Uh, again, I'm going to link that all. Which, really which is interesting because not too long before this, she also writes The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex, in which she espouses some really similar points. And never really talks about that. Like, like, so, so, so we all have, we all in our, our deconstruction, we talk about this on our podcast, right? We, we've all in our um, experiences of being part of the church have like espoused some, some really negative things, some really mm-hmm. harmful things. And Julia, you and I at several points on the podcast are kind of named some of those things. Nick, I remember you saying something, uh, having an example of that. To my knowledge, and, and I haven't listened to all of our podcasts, but to my knowledge, Sheila hasn't gone back and said, yeah, about that book. Please forget that I ever wrote it. Uh, here's all the money that I uh, have received from this. I'm donating it. Like there's been there's been no reparations. Uh-huh. So Sheila Ray Gregoire is a really interesting character in this. And uh, I, I see that she's getting a lot of, of, of positive buzz and, and, and good for her. She, she's she's promoting good stuff. And there's also that piece about and you also like participated in this in the 90s. And how are you talking about that? I, yeah, I appreciate you bringing all that up because I rem- I was reading through this open letter and I read through some of her other pieces and I thought this is a good critique. It does feel like she pulls back a little more than she should. And I was curious about the rest of it. But, you know, time is the enemy of research. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I really appreciate you bring that in. Uh, just uh, the only other thing I wanted to mention about this letter is like her main critique is she said examples of what focus on the family is affiliating with by endorsing love and respect. I'm just going to read some of her bullet points. One, a man has desperate needs. A woman only has desires, right? That's part of the false binary we pointed out. Sex is only for a husband's physical release. Women's pleasure is so unimportant. It's not worth mentioning. That's a big thing throughout this whole book. Sex is only discussed in the context of like a husband's needs. Yeah, that's it. Right. Um, It's also fascinating to me. And this is sort of a larger conversation about the way sex is framed for men in the church is it is a temptation only in so much as it is a programmed desperate need. Yeah. And it is a temptation because if you do not get it, you will be forced to seek it out. I remember talking in uh, a premarital counseling and with other friends who are having marital issues talking about well sex for a man is like going without water and sex for a woman is like going without ice cream it's a nice treat to have but you won't die without it wow yikes if a physically abusive husband repents he should be allowed back in the house that's part of what he espouses if a man is drinking or straying he should be shown respect rather than boundaries um, and a lot of that is recursive on the same theme. Um, th- just all the like permutations about that. Uh, women are more easily deceived and thus should not listen to their intuition or the still small voice in them. And that's a fascinating like component of all of this that like since it's a desire for women, they are the ones who need to initiate the subordination of the thing they need in order to address the fix in the cycle. Yeah. That feels we that combination of the two things you just said that like men, it's such an intense need that they will be led astray despite what they want to do and maybe what is moral and what their ethics are. They will just 
they're just it's unbridled, right? Like desire that will just lead them to do something horrible. But yet also women are more easily deceived. Like it feels right. like that's, there's some sort of weakness there that you're suggesting. And I don't believe that's true, but that men have that women actually don't have. So I'm not. I mean, I guess it's not it's it's ridiculous to even say I'm not following the logic because there is no logic here. But it's just (laughs) absolutely there feels like there's a contradiction there. I I mean, there absolutely is a contradiction, right? One hundred percent. That's the point. It's the it's the same contradiction. Like men get to call women the emotional ones by coding anger as not emotion. Right. 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 So if you allow men to only feel and only process all their emotions through the valence of anger and then excise anger from the conversation of emotion, well, then, of course, men aren't emotional. Right. Right. Uh, it was a great meme I saw the other day. It was like, yeah, no, men aren't the emotional ones. That's why women are the ones putting holes in drywall all the time. Just going to say that. I think I was the one who posted that. It was like, bro, I've never punched through drywall. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's really that's a really important component in this whole in this whole thing. So I, I'm glad we like were able to address that. You've also mentioned on your podcast and in our conversation today something very important, which is the performance of gender. Yeah. And now very, very briefly, without like spending way too much time on this topic that needs too much time spent on it, what do you from a therapist perspective, from a like praxis perspective? How do you address and define the concept of gender performance? And then, Teddy, I want you to follow that back up with like a gender studies, sociological perspective of gender performance. Well, the idea of gender performance suggests that there's only one script, that there's that that as a penis owner, you have one script. Uh, for following specific characteristics uh, that align with uh, those, um, you know, the the, the kind of the sociological um, emotions and characteristics given to that. Uh, so, uh, as a man, that means that I am uh, expected to be assertive uh, and and confident and strong and muscular and strong-willed and uh have a he- enormous appetite for sex and and and, and all of these things and um the performance element means that i am doing whatever i can to play that role even if characterologically speaking or preference speaking or interest speaking uh i i don't i don't want to do that mm-hmm. um so it's trying to kind of funnel uh the way that a person uh enacts life uh, through one particular script. How would you edit that? I don't think I would add to that. That's well said. Yeah, the That's single great. script. Mm-hmm. And so you're like, when you address this in therapy with somebody, it's about what? Uh, learning to not adhere to that script? Or is it learning oh. to break out of that script? It's, like, it's what's about, the next step then? I Yeah, I think it would be about being curious about where did those ideas come from? And what of those ideas actually resonate with with who you are? Jeremiah, you had mentioned that gender performance relies on one script and two genders Mm -hmm. rather than multitudes of genders and any number of scripts. So perhaps for some people sociological and cultural narratives do resonate and maybe they don't. So we can unpack where did the messages come from? What makes sense to us? And how do we move forward? That's super complicated uh, when so much of those scripts are socially reinforced, socially conditioned and socially rewarded. Yeah, that's awesome. I really appreciate like framing it that way. And I think you articulated it both really well. Teddy, what do you add to that from the like academic scholarship side of things? Honestly, not too much. I felt like you guys took a pretty theoretical lens, um, despite talking about it in a clinical context. I mean, when I think of gender being a performance, I just think of it as, you know, that being within the a social constructionist perspective, which would be the social sciences, that being born as a sexed male or sex female does not actually correlate with a certain set of concrete behaviors and desires. And that the idea is, you know, that we are instead given 
those behaviors and desires and told that that is our to stay with the theatrical, you know, language. That is our script. And I really like that Jeremiah emphasized or underscored that performance. It really is a performance in the sense that people are performing it despite not wanting to. Right. So there are people who are actually intentionally and consciously thinking, I wish I didn't have to do X, Y and Z insert whatever, whatever gender thing. But yet I feel like I have to. That is in a nutshell. You know, that's that's a performance. Right. There's an artificiality to it um, and not an innate desire. And I think the word performance also suggests that on the flip side, on a less negative way, that there is in a less negative way that there's also a kind of playfulness sometimes and joy and eroticism and fun that can Mm -hmm. come with this performance. So there's actually parts of it that we all simultaneously hate and like, you know, we, we enjoy parts of the performance. Right. Uh, But the, the divide there between a social scientist and a natural scientist would be the social scientist saying, this is not biologically, these behaviors and desires are not biologically ingrained. You couldn't see them under a microscope, right. That they're, they're impressed upon us. Yeah. 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 Really well said. I appreciate that. And I mean, I can think just anecdotally in my own life, I can think of very specific explicit instances where it's like, oh, yeah, I don't I don't want to think this way. I don't want to have to do this, but I I have to because that's what the boys do. That's what the guys do. Or that's, you know, yeah, it, it becomes this weird facade and in exploring like my own like recent diagnosis as as neurodivergent and all that stuff like a lot of the talk about social performance and masking to like get beyond has really opened up my eyes about how to think about my own gender and how to like my performance of that and and just different things like that so like i love this conversation of performance and i think that it's tragic to me, not even on a an academic or a deconstruction scale, just as a human, like it's really tragic that there's so much literature that's purporting help with relationships that is just reifying the scripts that already right. exist and not giving anybody a way to think beyond them. It's just, yeah. oh. Really, you have trouble saying your lines? Well, what I do when I have trouble saying my lines is I memorize them and then I memorize them again and realize that if I don't memorize, everyone will laugh at me. Yeah. Right. Like it's just attaching these larger scale consequences because that's what Egerich does at the end of this. Right. right? The solution to get out of the the crazy cycle, according to Egerich, is... Just think that when you're looking at your wife and wanting to be or feeling unloving towards her, just think that you would also be unloving to God and change your mind about it. Right. And if you want to be disrespectful to your husband, just recognize that you would also be being disrespectful to God. And therefore, he would be sad about that. And it's like, (laughs) I I don't quite understand how turning a heterosexual couple into a thruple actually fixes things (laughs) i i feel like that's not the best way to work through your relational issues by adding a multiplier there right 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 but it is a common move it is a common move uh, in evangelical writings this parallel process between uh god and human in this hierarchical way and man and woman in this hierarchical way uh, we just read through Joshua Butler's uh, "Beautiful Union," mm. which uh, does the, uh, over the, the over the year, which does this in an extremely disturbing way uh, when when talking about about sex, mm. uh, specifically about sex. So yeah, we'll we'll spare the listeners the uh, well give the them metaphor that tease he uses, them so but, that they can yeah but, tease. Um, but feel free to listen to our podcast episodes about this. Yeah, please do. I have found the stuff that the way you guys talk about these problematic things very helpful and very cool. enlightening. It reminds me of like the umbrella. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Or the hammer metaphor. Mine yeah. was a little more violent growing up, but yeah. I know my place. I know that I'm just a nail with the male hammer coming down on me. 
the last thing I want to mention before we uh, wrap up for today is is along the lines of this performance thing. Teddy, you and I have talked about this book a little bit, but there's this idea in queer feminism called the tragedy of heterosexuality. Mm-hmm. And it's a bit of a provocative way to frame it. But it's in short, like an analysis of straight culture that is characterized by the inescapable influence of sexism and toxic masculinity, which are either praised or coded into these straight spaces. So Teddy, I'm just going to give you a, a, a brief passage from Ward here that I'd love for you to read, just giving us what this straight culture thing is. The tragedy of heterosexuality is about men's control of women, but it is also about straight women's and men's shared romantic and erotic attachments to an unequal gender binary or to the heteroerotic fantasy of binary, biologically determined and naturally hierarchical gender oppositeness. The last feature, straight culture's eroticization of men's power over women, is often presented as a kind of benign playfulness a joke shared among straight women about how husbands always get away with doing their fair share, let's say. But the heteroerotic appetite for situations in which straight men can display power over women also fuels sexual violence, infusing straight culture with endless eroticized representations of men hurting women and with romantic tales of the redemption of violence, aggression, entitlement, and self-obsessed straight men. I think that kind of just hits it. For this entire like category of self-help right it's Mm -hmm. the the fetishization and eroticization eroticization it's a hard one right (laughs) power and and unequal status i love the heteroerotic fantasy of binary that Mm -hmm. is just a chef's kiss phrase how does this track with the kinds of harm that you have all that Jeremiah and Julia, you guys have seen uh, as you help people work through their relationships. And again, not not exclusively people coming out of like the Christian sphere, but just in those heterosexual relationships, like, does this track? And if so, like how? And obviously in ethical ways, share. (laughs) Yes, it tracks, Julia. Definitely. It definitely tracks. Christian culture likes to pretend that it is more countercultural than it actually is. So the ideas that you're describing occur in all kinds of chiclet and all kinds of different erotic material. And as the text describes more eloquently than me, we de-emphasize the harm that actually exists within this heterosexual fantasy in which not only the binary occurs, but a hierarchical binary occurs. So much of the work in in therapy, particularly in relationships in which um, men and women are in a relationship together, is undoing some of these messages mm-hmm. around gender, unlearning and relearning other ways of existing. So the spectrum of harm that exists within the love and respect book certainly depends on the context in which you accessed it. My context was particularly insular, particularly fundamentalist. So the spectrum of harm to me and folks in similar communities was quite high. It might not be as high for someone in another context, but we've got to actually reckon with how dangerous these norms are. And we've got to get away from the lightheartedness with which we view uh, these, you know, quote unquote, silly gendered battles, the men are from Mars, women are from Venus types of stereotypes. And again, these aren't fringy books. These are read by, by, I mean, th- these are mass produced. I hadn't heard of uh, Emerson Egricks until we did this podcast. But I have heard of the five love languages. Mm. Uh, I have heard of, of course, men are from Mars, women from Venus uh, and, and a myriad of other books written in the 90s. I would say probably one of every four couples that I work with makes reference uh, to some sort of self-help book that um, that 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 plays on these themes uh, from the 90s and 2000s. Uh, so, so these are like widely propagated ideas 
both inside of and outside of the church. Like Julia, you and I work in in in, in Massachusetts, which is this, which doesn't really have an evangelical perspective, but it has this really weird bench, or this really weird mixture, excuse me, between a Catholic and a highly academic. Um, so 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 this this um, seemingly like progressive. Uh, types of communities, but th- that are still like learning about these really, these really harmful messages. So, so I don't know about the particular harm of this particular book, uh, but the harm of nineties and two thousands uh, self-help literature uh, around relationships is, is pretty, pretty extreme. If I can plug a show for people to watch please do. Uh, the book or the, the book, the show um, with Annie Murphy, Kevin can F himself. Uh, is a really interesting critique on some of these gendered binaries that we're discussing today. Incredibly incisive and hilarious and turning some of these themes, not only on their heads, but showing the danger of what happens when we follow these binaries. So it will also make you laugh. If you have a dark sense of humor like me, you'll probably like it. And Annie Murphy is incredible. I love her her so much. Yeah, so Kevin F himself, an amazing, interesting take on some of these themes. That's awesome. I really appreciate you guys coming on and talking with us. This is always so much fun when we get to be together. I've loved our conversation so far. Um, Where can folks find you? We'll, of course, link all of this in the show notes, but just uh, give it a little verbal shout out. Yeah, uh, our podcast, Exvangelicals, can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we also have a Substack page called Relationship 101 uh, that can be found sub that can be found sexvangelicals.substack.com, and uh, we hang out uh, in the meta world. We hang out uh, on Instagram and Threads at sexvangelicals. Fantastic! Thanks so much. Like I said, we'll link all those in the show notes. We'll have them up on our socials. Please check out Sexvangelicals podcast and all the wonderful work that Jeremiah and Julia do. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. And Thank you. you. Please, as you go on to follow them, please follow us and send us around as well uh, on Instagram at oh god I forgot that pod and uh, find Sexvangelicals and oh god I forgot about that wherever you get your podcast. Talk to y'all soon. Uh, before we we move forward, I just wanted to mention some of these other ones. I don't think they're worth spending a lot of time on, but just the titles themselves entice me. And I could right. spend an entire episode talking about these. But uh, there was a book in 2007 called Why Men Love Bitches. Oh, yeah. Oh. And it's, I'm not uh, familiar with that one. Yeah, no. Uh, the like just the first line is in the description is, do you feel like you're too nice? Sherry Argov's Why Men Love Bitches delivers a unique perspective as to why men are attracted to a strong woman who stands up to herself. With saucy detail on every page. <laughs> it's interesting that a woman wrote that. And it's interesting yeah. that a woman who stands up for herself is a bitch. Right. Right. Uh, there's another right. side of this, which is written by a man called The Manual. A true bad boy explains how men think, date, and mate, and what women can do to come out on top. A true bad boy, Julia. Yeah, true bad boy. True uh, bad boy. First sentence. Not a a self-proclaimed bad boy, Steve <laughs> Santagati, tells us that women are attracted to naughty men. Wait, hang on. All you're saying in that sentence, Steve, is that you think women are attracted to you. To you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a weird kind of narcissism, narcissism to these books, yeah, too. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> That's hilarious. And the last one, I'm going to... I just... I feel like I have to have this read. Um... Would one of you please read, Jeremiah or Jeremiah? Read the description to Steve Harvey's book. Oh, oh God. God. Act like a lady, think like a man. man. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I know it's a brick of text, but it's hilarious. As a popular comedian, the radio host and red blooded male, Harvey, doesn't have the bona, the bona fides typical to most women's relationship self help. But he still manages a thorough, witty guide to the modern man. Harvey undertakes the task. 
think task because yeah, women women are clueless about men because men get away with a whole lot of stuff. They sure do. And because he has some valuable information to change all of that. Harvey makes a game effort, taking a bold but familiar men are dogs approach. If you're cutting back on sex, he will have another woman lined up in getting and giving him what he needs and wants. The cookie. Wow. Several chapters later, however, he introduces the 90 day rule, asserting that actually he will always have another woman lined up. (laughs) (laughs) And the only way to make sure a three month and the only way to make sure is a three month vetting period. Harvey also tackles mama's boys, independent and lonely women, and the matter of children in the dating world. If he's meeting the kids after you decide he's the one, it's too late. Feminists and the easily offended probably won't take to Harvey's statements and blunt advice. But Harvey's fans and those in need of and those in need of tough but ticklish love advice, check it out, especially the last hysterical, especially the hysterical last Q&A. Wow. There's so much there. <laughs> and also nothing. And also, and also, why the hell is Steve Harvey writing a relate? Well, two things. One, why the hell is Steve Harvey writing a relationship book? Two, what fucking publishing company is is giving Steve Harvey the license to write and and um express and publish uh literature and advice about relationships? Also, she like, has no uh study in. I like how the feminists and the easily offended are just grouped together. <laughs> Right? Those of you who care about human rights probably won't enjoy this so book. You will probably get offended. <laughs> Here we go. That's great. Um, the answer, Jeremiah, is Harper Collins is the publisher. You're that fucking left. kidding me. It's an imprint from Harper Collins, but it's still Harper Collins. Oh wow! Yeah, uh, someone needs to be fired. The Somebody former needs ed- to be fired. Yeah, the former editor in me also just wanted to rewrite the whole the whole thing to make yeah, it sound a little better. I was gonna sit and rewrite these, but it would have just taken way too long to do that. We, we wouldn't okay. want you to well, do that, Nick. No, no, no. All right, you have too many other important things to do. 